0: chapter 10. Luke 10. Our summer series is just week by week looking at different parables that Jesus told, talking about those parables, trying to make sense of them, trying to apply them to our lives. And by now you know the definition of a parable. We've talked about it almost every week. Parables are stories, usually simple stories taken from real life from which moral and or spiritual truths are drawn. So it's just an everyday story, something familiar to the audience. When you hear the story, you're supposed to take away a moral or a spiritual truth. And that certainly applies this morning to the parable we call the parable of the Good Samaritan. This is maybe Jesus' most famous parable. I think it is Jesus' most famous parable, most well-known parable parable a lot of the commentaries I read said no the the parable of the prodigal son is probably better known but I think this one is better known even if people don't know the actual story we've all heard of being a good Samaritan or good Samaritan laws so it's just sort of permeated our culture and I mentioned this several times in our summer series so many of these parables are so familiar to us that we come to them already expecting and thinking that we know what it says and what it means and I think that this parable is really tricky in that regard because I think the, the instant, quick, the simple answer and application of what Jesus is talking about is not really at all what Jesus is talking about. And I don't think that it's wrong, the way that many people approach this passage and talk about this passage and teach this passage, wrong in a biblical sense. I just don't think it's the necessary uh, immediate point here in Luke chapter 10. So As we look at these parables, one of the things we're trying to do is take into consideration the context, right? In the Gospels, very rarely do we just have a parable drop in and then you're out and there's no context given. Almost always the Gospel authors tell us something about who Jesus was talking to or where he was or why he was telling a a particular parable. And all of those things are super important to understand before you read it and before you try to make sense of it and apply it to our lives so let's just start off with a few simple ideas some background information you need to remind yourself that in jesus's day there were no good samaritans okay it did not exist as a category jesus didn't look at this guy in luke 10 and say let me tell you the story of the good samaritan he said let me tell you a a story No one in Jesus' day would have had a category for good and Samaritan being together. In the Jewish mind, Samaritans were half-breeds, and they were idol worshipers. The half-breed part was bad, but the idol-worshiping part was really bad. And so in Jewish mind, these people are basically Gentiles. They worship idols just like the Gentiles do, and they totally kept them at arm's length. What was unfortunate for the Samaritans... Is that from the opposite side, the Gentile side, they were way too Jewish for anybody to want to have anything to do with them. People hated the Jews because the Jews were so arrogant about certain things and so, so sort of uh, isolated in their own communities. And they wouldn't fraternize with other people at this point in history. And so they said, look, you guys are pretty much Jewish. We don't want anything to do with you. Which meant that Samaritans really were outcasts. They didn't have a place to belong except with themselves. And in the Jewish mind, these weren't the good guys, these were the bad guys. So you just got to remind yourself, in Jesus' day, there were no good Samaritans. You also need to understand something about the lawyer. And I didn't put anything on your notes about the lawyer, but this is a bit confusing for us because when we hear, okay, a lawyer walks up to Jesus, we immediately think Perry Mason. Perry Mason or Ben Matlock, or Saul Goodman, or you pick your favorite lawyer. Whatever lawyer you like, you pick your favorite lawyer in TV show, and you think that's the kind of guy that's walking up to Jesus. It's not at all what's happening when a lawyer approaches Jesus. When you read, a lawyer comes to put Jesus to the test, you need to just sort of, in your brain, don't scratch anything out in your Bible, but maybe you could write a note and just write, seminary graduate. Okay? This is a guy who's gone to Bible college. This is a guy who has theological training in the Old Testament law, the Torah. And he's coming to Jesus, and we've got to give him a little bit of credit. He asks Jesus the most important question that anyone can ever ask. We're going to read it here in just a minute, but the question is, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? There was a guy who lived in the 19th century. His name was J.C. Ryle. He's a famous theologian. Uh, His beard would be back in style if he lived today. We've come full circle. Uh, He was uh, a bishop in uh, what we know as the UK. And he's talking in this quote. He's talking about the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And this is what he says. He says, this question, it deserves the principal attention of every man, woman, and child on earth. We are all sinners, dying sinners, going to be judged after death. How shall our sins be pardoned? Wherewith shall we come before God? How shall we escape the damnation of hell? Whither shall we flee from the wrath to come? What must we do to be saved? These are inquiries which people of every rank ought to put to themselves and never to rest until they find an answer. Some of you have thought about this question. Some of you have thought about it an awful lot. What must I do to be saved? What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And if that's you, I'm grateful that you've come to the point in your life, maybe because of your parents, or because of the church you attended, or somebody handed you a Bible at some point, where you've wrestled with this question, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life and to be saved? But I promise you, there are some of you in the room this morning that have never really wrestled with this question. Maybe some of you think that, you know, it's not that big of a deal. You just kind of have to be a good person. I talked with several people this last week on our our mission trip to Canada who looked me in the eye and said exactly that. And I promise you, Canadians are no different than people in Texas. No different. You just got to be, you know, a good person. Well, how good do you have to be, I would ask them. Well, you know, I guess more good than bad. So like 51%? There's a lot of people who have never really wrestled with this question because in their mind they just think, I just, I just, I'm just going to try to be a good person. Some of you have maybe re- never wrestled with this question because you don't even think sin is that big of a deal. You just think it's a bunch of Christians getting uptight and overconscious about a lot of things we don't need to worry about. Some of you may have different ideas about God and how the final judgment works, but I'm begging you this morning to at least put your shoes in the position of this lawyer. Put yourself in his shoes, in his position, where he comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And if you've never wrestled with that question, I pray you would wrestle with it this morning. It's the most important question that you can ever ask. So we give him a little bit of credit. He comes and he asks the right question. But we also see that he asks for all the wrong reasons. He comes, and as as I said earlier, we'll read it in a minute. He comes to test Jesus, and then later he tries to justify himself. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He's going to ask Jesus. And Jesus isn't going to answer that question. He's just going to respond with another question. He's going to say, well, what's the Bible say? In other words, well, you've been to seminary. You tell me you're the educated one what does the scripture say and in my bible there's some footnotes and it tells me that when he responds to jesus jesus says what does the bible say and the lawyer fires back he quotes two passages out of the old testament deuteronomy 6 5 and leviticus 19 18 and i'll just tell you straight up he gives the right answer what does the scripture say what does the bible say and he quotes the exact two verses that Jesus quotes in other times when people say, what's the most important thing in the, all of the law? Summarize the whole law for us. Those are the two verses that Jesus uses, the exact two. Deuteronomy 6, five and Leviticus 19.18. He's asking the right question, and he's even, in a sense, giving the right answer, but he's coming for all the wrong reasons. And what we see is that when Jesus affirms his answer and he says, yes, you've answered correctly, go do it, the lawyer should have been crushed by the weight of the law. Instead, he tried to justify himself. what I mean is this. He says to Jesus, what do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus says, well, you've studied the Bible. What does the Bible say? And he looks back at Jesus and he says, "Well, I'm supposed to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself." Deuteronomy six five and Leviticus nineteen eighteen. And Jesus says, "Man, sounds like you got it. To me, go do it." At that moment, he should have looked at Jesus and said, "I haven't, and I can't. I'm incapable of doing it. I've fallen short of that standard." And if he would have said those things to Jesus at this point in the conversation, it would have gone a completely different way. Instead, his heart comes out and his motive comes out where he wanted to test Jesus, and now he wants to justify himself. Jesus responds with a parable, a parable we know of as the parable of the Good Samaritan. So here's the big idea of the parable, thinking about the two verses that the, the lawyer quotes and Jesus affirms. Loving God involves loving your neighbor. If you're going to love God, you have to love your neighbor. Those two things are connected. And loving your neighbor involves sacrifice. You don't just get to say, I love my neighbor without ever putting action to it. It's going to cost you something. So Loving God involves loving your neighbor, and loving your neighbor involves sacrifice. Let's read the story, read the parable, and then we'll pray together. Luke 10, 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this. And you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And the next day he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Which of the three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful. For the stories of Jesus, we're grateful for these parables. And we pray this morning as we look at a familiar parable that we would understand why Jesus told it, that we would understand what Jesus is saying to this lawyer and what the scriptures are saying to us. Father, And we pray that your spirit who inspired these words would apply them to our heart and help us to respond in a way that honors you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Start off showing you a picture. This is a picture of the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Obviously, this is not centuries old like the New Testament is, but it is decades old. And there's some newer pictures of the exact same road I could show you, but the old picture just kind of made it feel a little bit more relatable to the story we're talking about to me. So you see this road. This is the road between Jerusalem in Jericho. And the road is about 17 miles long, and from Jerusalem to Jericho, it drops 3,000 feet. So if you're going up to Jerusalem from Jericho, it's an uphill climb all the way, 3,000 feet up over 17 miles. If you're leaving Jerusalem, which was elevated, obviously, and going down to Jericho, which was much closer to sea level, 17-mile trip, downhill, you just put it on autopilot, and if it's snowing, maybe you could slide all the way down. I don't know, but 3,000 feet drop is a pretty big drop. And when you look at the picture, I'll just tell you, most of the 17 miles looks a lot like that, both today and in Jesus' day. There's not a whole lot out there. There's no uh, stripes to stop at on the side of the road or no burger to stop if you get hungry, nothing like that, just rocks all the way. And as you look at that, you can understand people who had taken this trip had been up and down this road. They could understand, you know, if you were traveling all by yourself down the road, from Jerusalem down, they're traveling down in this story to Jericho, it would be easy for a group of robbers to maybe hide in the ditch or hide behind a rock or hide behind the hill and to pop out and to take you by surprise. So it's a familiar story to Jesus's audience. I want to give you one caution before we jump in and talk about this story. And I've heard people teach it and I've heard people preach it and make this very mistake. And so one word of caution Be very careful that you don't try to allegorize the parable of the Good Samaritan. Be very, very careful that you don't try to decode it as each detail and point in the story has a sort of symbolic hidden meaning that if you can figure out what everything represents, you'll have some secret knowledge of the parable. That's not what Jesus is doing in parables at all. There was a man in the early church named Augustine. You've probably heard of Augustine. Sometimes we call him Augustine. Augustine was arguably the most brilliant theologian who's ever lived. Catholics say this and Protestants say this. We all love Augustine. He was brilliant. He was super, super smart. Brilliant man. But in his approach to parables, he tried to turn them into allegories. And so Augustine looked at the parable that we just read and he said this. Jerusalem, it doesn't really mean Jerusalem. It means heaven. And the wounded man isn't really a wounded man. It's Adam and the priest and the Levite aren't really a priest and a Levite they're the law and the prophets they can't save us was his point the Samaritan really isn't a Samaritan the Samaritan is Jesus the inn isn't an inn, it's the church oil and wine, this is to me the most creative really isn't oil and wine it's baptism and the Lord's Supper and the innkeeper, somehow we just have to find out somebody to you know, figure out who he is he's Paul and you can sort of see where he's going with this right? And you can kind of look at the breakdown and say, well, you know, it kind of makes sense biblically, like Jesus saves us and the law can't save us. Like nothing he's saying is not true. The problem is it's just not Jesus' point in the parable. It's not like some secret code where you get your cereal box out and you get your secret decoder ring and hover it over the thing and you hover over law and it changes from law to the, you know, something completely different. Jesus is taking something that was familiar to the people that he's speaking to, and he's using it to drive home a point. And our job, our goal is not to try to decode everything and figure out what Jesus was really talking about, but it's just to understand the story and to think about the man that he told it to and what Jesus was trying to say to this man. So as a story, it's pretty straightforward. Jesus says, there's a man, and he doesn't tell us anything about this man. Keep that detail in your brain. Just says, there was a man, It's just a guy. Is he Jewish? We don't know. Is he Gentile? I don't know. Samaritan? He's just a man. And he's going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And he falls among the robbers and the thieves, and they attack him, and they beat him up, and they leave him on the side of the road half dead. And then a little while later, here comes A priest, and then later a Levite, and they both pass by on the opposite side, and neither of them stops to help. I've heard some people say they didn't stop to help because they were on their way to serve in the temple, but the directions are backward. That really doesn't make sense. They're going down, and the road going down goes from Jerusalem to Jericho. So maybe you could say the priest and the Levite, they had been up to Jerusalem to serve at the temple, and maybe they were done with their service and they were ready to go home. But for whatever reason, they pass by and they don't stop. They don't help this wounded man. But then a Samaritan comes by and he sees the guy in the ditch and he has compassion on him. And he stops to help. There's a great risk to himself. He takes the injured man and he puts him on his animal, which means he can't ride the animal. He's got to now walk. And he goes to the inn and he leaves him with the innkeeper and he says, look, I'll pay for this guy, take care of him, let him rest, doctor him back to health. If you need more money when I come back, I'd be happy to give it to you. This is the story that Jesus tells. Our goal is to say, what is Jesus trying to say to this lawyer who came to test him and who wanted to justify himself? Let's start with this question. Give you a couple of questions that maybe you've thought about, maybe you've never thought about. Question one Why didn't Jesus give a direct answer to the lawyer's question? Like, the guy comes to Jesus and he says, What must I do to be saved? If you've ever read the book of Acts, you know that the first time Peter preached a sermon, he got done preaching on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, and the crowd responded, What do we need to do to be saved? And Peter did not tell them a story. He said, repent and be baptized. You'll be saved. And if you've kept reading in Acts, you remember that on one of Paul's mission trips, we've talked about this lately, Paul found himself in Philippi. And he's in prison. And there's this big dramatic event in the middle of the night. And the jailer has been listening to Paul and Silas sing. And when they're ready to escape or when they could escape, but they stayed put, the jailer says, What do I need to do to be saved? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul doesn't tell this story. It's the exact same question, but Peter and Paul don't give the same answer. So you just sort of wonder, why didn't Jesus just look at the man and say, You're a sinner, you need to repent of your sin, and you need to throw yourself on God's mercy. That would have been the direct answer why not answer his question? Well, maybe there's a couple of things going on here. One, he knew the lawyer's motives. He knew and he understood that this man was coming to test Jesus. He wasn't coming humbly to get an answer. He was coming to see if he could trap Jesus and play a theological word game. Jesus knew that. Secondly, Jesus was trying to engage the lawyer's heart. He's trying to take this abstract theological question that the lawyer brings to Jesus and to bring it down into something concrete that he would then be forced to wrestle with and to think about in his own life second question and this is to me the more interesting question and again you may have never thought about this question why did Jesus make the Samaritan the hero instead of the priest or the Levite why take the Samaritan the bad guy, and make him the hero instead of making the priest or the Levite the hero? And why take this anonymous man and put him beat up, left for dead in the ditch instead of putting the Samaritan in the ditch? Okay, are you tracking with me? Put your thinking cap on. If the only thing that Jesus was trying to say to this lawyer is that you need to love everyone, even your enemies. If that was the point, and that's what I've heard over and over in my life, that Jesus is just trying to say you're supposed to love everyone. If the point of the parable is you're supposed to love everyone, even your enemies, it would make a whole lot more sense to put the bad guy in the ditch in need and to put a Jewish person in the position of the hero and to have the Jewish person do the right thing and help his enemy. Show love to his enemy. And Jesus could have wrapped it up nicely, and he said, Do you now see? Even your enemy, you're supposed to love your enemy. Jesus is not trying to make that point in the parable. He's not trying to draw a circle for the lawyer to tell him this is who falls in the category of neighbor, which is what the neighbor what the the lawyer wants, right? Who is my neighbor trying to justify himself? Okay. If you're going to say, I just have to keep these commands and love my neighbor, I know who God is, I'll love God. Who is my neighbor? Limit it for me. Boil it down for me, Jesus, and tell me exactly what it is that I have to do. And Jesus really isn't telling him anything that he has to do here. He could have if he took the bad guy, the Samaritan, and put him in the ditch, and he could have said, Look, the The Levite and the priest came by and they helped this man who was their mortal enemy. You should go do the exact same thing. You understand the lawyer would have left with a circle drawn around him and Samaritans. And he would have said, well, that's what I've got to do. Me and Samaritans, those are the people that I've got to love. Jesus isn't trying to draw a circle for him. And to put anybody in the category of who he has to love, he's trying to make a completely different point. So let's say this Why did he make the Samaritan the hero? One reason the Samaritan hero has greater shock value and it doesn't limit neighbor, has greater shock value. It would be shocking to hear of a Jewish person helping a Samaritan, but by flipping it, it's even more shocking by making the bad guy the true hero of the story. It would be like me telling you a story, and we've talked about this before as we've looked at parables. It would be like me telling you a story about uh, an ISIS soldier who did the right thing in helping a wounded Marine. It totally flips your categories upside down, and you don't really know what to do with that kind of story. And you've got to stop and say, no, wait a minute. How do I make sense of that? Jesus is going for shock value 100%. He's trying to get through to this man's heart. All he wants to do is test Jesus and justify himself and argue about abstract theological ideas. And Jesus is trying to bring it home saying, Listen, you really need to wrestle with the question that you asked me. How is a person saved? So he's going for shock value. And he's not trying to limit this man's definition of neighbor. Same way of saying that is point two. Point two. A Samaritan hero makes the neighbor the subject rather than the object. And I know that you may not be super familiar with grammar and parts of speech and subjects and objects, but just track with me. The lawyer comes to Jesus and he says, who's my neighbor? And in his mind, he's thinking the neighbor is out there somewhere. He's the object. He's the subject. It's all about me and the neighbors are out there. They exist out there. And he wants to look through this whole world and he wants Jesus to say, neighbor, 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 here's where you draw the line. These are the people you have to love if you want to go to heaven, if you want to inherit eternal life. Jesus totally refuses to play that game. And instead of making neighbor the object... And telling the man, you have to just love everyone. You have to do this. You have to do that. You have to love Samaritans or whoever you want to put in the circle or add to the list. Jesus flips the whole thing around. And you know he flips it because when he comes to the end, the question he asks to the lawyer is not, who's the neighbor that you have to love? He says, which one acted like a neighbor? What Jesus is saying is, I don't need to sort of fill your circle with all the people that need to be in there. I need to completely change your heart and your way of thinking. You're stuck in the mindset of, you need to do something to inherit eternal life. You're stuck in the mindset of, show me specifically the bare minimum of what I have to do to be saved, and that's what I'm going to shoot for. You're going to throw Samaritans in there? Okay, I'll shoot for that. And nothing more. You want to throw Gentiles in there? Okay, I'll shoot for that. Nothing more. Boil it down for me. And Jesus says, I'm not boiling anything down. It's not about making lists. It's not about putting people in your circle. It's about your mindset and your heart completely being flipped upside down. And you understanding that you are the one that is supposed to be a neighbor. Jesus understands, if I can change this lawyer's mind and get him to see that God doesn't so much want you to do certain things for certain people so that you can be saved, he wants you to be a different kind of person. He wants your heart changed. Jesus knows, if I can get this man's heart changed, I won't have to make him a list. If he understands that he's supposed to be neighborly, I won't have to tell him who to be a neighbor to completely flips it on its head. Unfortunately, I don't think the lawyer got it. And I say that if you look at the end of the parable, I think it ends tragically when Jesus says, which of the three, the Samaritan, the priest, or the Levite, which of the three proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The answer is... The Samaritan. That's the answer. It's A, Samaritan, B, priest, C, Levite. That's what Jesus is looking for. And I think with clenched teeth and white knuckles and his heart pounding because he's humiliated and he's embarrassed and he knows what Jesus is trying to do, he grits his teeth and instead of saying the word Samaritan... (laughs) He's the hero. He's the neighbor. He says, the one who showed him mercy. All he had to say was the Samaritan. He says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, well, you go and do likewise. How do we apply it? Let me give you a few thoughts of application. Number one, applying the parable to specific people in specific situations misses the point. Totally misses the point. The lawyer came to Jesus and he wanted to know you tell me exactly who I need to love. Who's my neighbor? You tell me and I'll go do it. And too many times in my life, I've heard people teach this parable or apply this parable, and what they say is, okay, the guy on the corner, that's who you need to go love. Okay, the, the, Mom who's in need, that's who you need to go love. Okay, the widow who doesn't have anybody, that's who you need to go love. And they throw out all these specific people. That's what the lawyer wanted. He wanted a checklist. Who do I have to love and be kind to and be a neighbor to? And Jesus never gives him that. He never, ever, ever answers his question. He completely flips it around and he says, you're supposed to be the neighbor. It's not about looking out there and trying to check a box off. It's about looking in here and seeing if you're the kind of person that God wants you to be. So when you apply it and you say, look, we need to be, we need to, uh, be good Samaritans to the people in Kenya or the people in Alaska or the people in Canada or the needy people in Odessa or any other specific application, you're just sort of taking what Jesus turned inward to our hearts and you're turning it back outwards and you're saying just do this 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 and this and that's what it means to love your neighbor jesus is less concerned with you having a list of who you need to love as he is you being a loving person and that leads me to the second thought of application god's people are called to be merciful because god has shown us mercy in christ Jesus just doesn't want to give a list of all the people you're supposed to be kind to and nice to so that you can do it, check it off, pat yourself on the back and say, I guess I get to inherit eternal life now. He wants you to look at your heart and he wants you to see, have you experienced God's mercy? And has God's mercy to you changed you into a merciful person? I think that's what Hunter talked about last week with the parable of the the unforgiving servant. I haven't listened to it yet, but I'm guessing that there was some talk about look, when you've been forgiving forgiven much, you ought to then be a forgiving person. It's exactly what Jesus is saying here. The Bible says that God had love for his people before the foundation of the world. The Bible says that God had love for his people while while we were his enemies. The Bible says that Jesus came not that we might serve him, but that he might serve us and give his life as a ransom for ours. He came to seek and to save what was lost. The Bible says that the Spirit of God has been sent by the Father and sent by the Son to take out our heart of stone, the heart of stone that wants to make lists and check everything off, and given us a heart of flesh that we might love God and truly for the first time in our lives keep his commandments. God has done all of that for us as a free gift of his grace and his mercy. We haven't earned or deserved any of it. And when you get that, when you get that Jesus Christ was God in human flesh come to live for you and die for you, when you get that God sent his spirit to bring you to life when you were dead, when God's mercy takes hold of you, I don't need to give you a list of who to be kind to. I don't need to detail out who you need to forgive. I don't need to give you all of those specifics because God's mercy changes us into merciful people. His forgiveness changes us into forgiving people. The last idea is this. We just need to acknowledge our failure to keep God's law and abandon all attempts at self-justification. And that's where the lawyer really, really missed it. When you come to Jesus and you say, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you need to love God with everything that you have and everything that you are. And then you need to love your neighbor as you love yourself. I hope and I pray that you don't walk away from that answer thinking, all right, let's go, I can do it. I hope you hear that answer and it just crushes you to the ground, flat, on your face before Jesus and you acknowledge I haven't done that I can't do it now and I know that I will never be able to do it on my own and what I need Jesus is grace and mercy what I need is someone to do that for me someone to do it in my place and someone to die for my failure to do what you've called me to do and commanded me to do listen when you come before God trying to justify yourself, you always end up with white knuckles and clenched teeth and racing pulse, gritting your teeth, trying to just be good enough. And When you come to God and you just acknowledge, I've fallen short and I can't do it on my own and I'm trusting in what you have done for me in Jesus and I'm trusting that what you've done for me in Jesus will transform me into the kind of person that you want me to be, you walk away free. You walk away joyful. You walk away worshiping. You walk away the complete opposite of this lawyer who came to put Jesus to the test. And so this morning, the, the question before us is simple. What do we need to do to inherit eternal life? And the thing that Jesus is trying to drive home to our hearts is, we can't. That's why he came. To seek us and to save us. To serve us by giving his life as a ransom for ours. To send his spirit to bring us to life when we were dead. My prayer this morning is that you wrestle with that question. That you listen to the response of the lawyer that you understand what the gospel message is all about and what the scriptures are pointing to and that you run to Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your grace and your mercy. And we just stop to remind ourselves that apart from your grace and apart from your mercy, we have no hope and we have no life. We have no good thing to bring to you. Father, I pray for those who are in the room this morning, for every person, and I pray that we would wrestle with this question, what needs to happen for us to inherit eternal life? What do we need to do to be saved? Father, and that we would see the fullness of the gospel on display in acknowledging that there is nothing we can do other than throw ourselves on your grace and your mercy, trusting in Christ, rejoicing in your spirit, Father, be honored as we lift our voices and as we sing to you in response to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.